0: Sweden is held up as this fantastic example in the sort of global sphere of success, but it's just not reflected in the sort of numbers or in the analysis.
1: No, and it's entirely ideological. It's it's basically the people who um, are anti-lockdown, I'll say, um, even though I dislike the term because nobody ever defined what a lockdown is and they seem to yeah. move it around, um, using it as, a, as, a, as an ideological example.
0: To the death panel to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com/slash death panel pod. Our premium episode is released every Monday for patrons only. You get access to our entire back catalog of over a hundred patron-only episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order health communism, and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, I am joined by our guest, David Stedson. David is one of the co-authors of a paper called Evaluation of Science Advice During the COVID-19 Pandemic in Sweden. David is from Australia, but has been living and working in Sweden for over two decades and has a long career and broad background in epidemiology, public health, and technology. David, welcome to the death Panel. It's great to have you here, and thank you so much for making the time.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to be here.
0: So... This paper is, first of all, uh, huge and uh, is co-authored with seven other people, um, Mm -hmm. including, forgive me if I'm pronouncing her name wrong, but it's Neely Brusselars of Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Can you tell listeners a little bit about how this paper came about? I know it's been a long-term project and you all wrote it quite a while ago, which is, I guess, sort of the temporal nature of academic publishing, right? Things take a long time. But for listeners who haven't read this really quite comprehensive and very detailed paper, can you set up what the framing is, who you and your co-authors are, and what the paper tries to show?
1: Right. Um, Well, the paper is actually part of a broader project out of the University of Colorado called the Escape COVID Project. And it's actually looking at how policy was informed by science in various countries around the world. So Sweden is just one of the countries that the project has been looking at, and uh, Nello was recruited as a team leader, and uh, she subsequently recruited myself and uh, the other authors to participate in the paper. Um, it was for us, it was uh, primarily a volunteer work. We received no funding mm-hmm. at all for the paper. So it was, um, yeah, whoever could put in the time that they could. And it's, yeah, it was. it's a very long paper. It's, I think, together with a supplement, something like 40,000 words. Yeah. And um, we submitted it last September. So it has been quite a while since I last went through it. I had to to read the whole thing again myself to <laughs> participate for the call today.
0: No, of course. I mean, it's it's incredibly comprehensive, right? It covers a bunch of different aspects of the pandemic response from mm-hmm. sort of setting up uh, how the Swedish government works and how authority was sort of dictated through centralized nodes. It details discrepancies between official communication and back channel communication within the government itself. You know, I guess my my first question is, can we talk a little bit about what some of your findings were? Because this is not a positive review of the Swedish government's response. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's quite critical. It's not surprising that you weren't necessarily able to have it funded. But what did Sweden do or not do to combat COVID-19? And, you know, what was sort of the strategy that they were working with?
1: Yeah, well, as we say in the paper, the, the government actually has has claimed there was no official strategy, right. <laughs> um, which was very odd. That was actually the the Minister for Health and Welfare said that in a in parliamentary inquiry a few months ago. Uh, but there's also subsequently been various other claims about what it has been. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy about whether there's been a herd immunity strategy or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the semi-official position there that's been given was that um, herd immunity was not to the strategy, but a side effect of the strategy. <laughs> now, if you look at, I, I think you probably everybody remembers back at the beginning of the, the pandemic, everybody around the world was talking about flattening the curve, mm-hmm. You know, drawing mm-hmm. these curves and flattening them down. The interesting thing is if you look at that approach, the, the total number of people that get sick and die actually doesn't change. It's just been spread out over time. Right. Um, and so the goal was initially at least that, okay, we have this new disease, we have this new virus, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're really worried that healthcare could collapse and that could have dramatic impact on all of society. Right. So the first thing we have to do is you know, keep it in, under control so healthcare doesn't collapse. And that basically became the overriding goal, I believe, and we believe within Sweden. It was just entirely focused on healthcare coping with the pandemic.
0: Mm -hmm. And not about reducing infections or preventing infections.
1: No. Uh, And in fact, we have the then deputy state epidemiologist at one stage saying that if we if we slow down the infections too much, that would be a bad thing. <laughs> oh
0: my god! I mean, it's 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 very frustrating because coming from the United States, um, as someone who is, uh, you know, I guess at a increased risk of catching mm. COVID and having um, bad outcomes, regardless of my vaccination status, even though I'm vaccinated and boosted, I'm immunocompromised. And mm. we've had recent changes in the United States to the ways that we sort of report Community risk levels. And we've recently begun to accept these much higher levels of infection in communities before the United States government and the CDC starts even recommending masking. And this is a change that I think has been a long time coming, and many in the United States have advocated for it. And a lot of them have often pointed to Sweden as kind of the reason why this is okay. They've pointed to Sweden as a success case. as an example of being able to, quote unquote, control the virus without shutting down the economy. And I think what you guys really show is that, you know, ultimately, this kind of international understanding of Sweden, um, sort of successfully managing the pandemic does not really reflect the reality of of use all, you know, the experience that you've all had, actually living in Sweden, living through the pandemic. I mean, it seems like The strategy was really to prioritize uh, normalcy, right? And prioritize, as you're saying, these sort of things like keeping the hospital from being too overwhelmed, which obviously is like a very important part of trying to keep COVID from sort of having these compounding negative social determinant effects within the sort of broader health population. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the sort of delays in cancer screenings resulting in cancers being much more severe by the time they're caught. I mean, we're we're two years into this pandemic, unfortunately, though, and it doesn't seem like these strategies of just sort of allowing unchecked infection are necessarily producing the results that we want in the population. How, you know, how was actually the sort of the healthcare capacity managed in Sweden?
1: Right. Well, that's one of the more con- controversial parts of our paper that uh, everybody's been a bit shocked about. Yeah. Um, and... The shock to me has actually come as almost a surprise again because we've known about it for a long time. (laughs) This this idea that um, elderly in particular were prioritised away and triaged out of hospitals. Right. So, well, first I want to go back a little bit to to what you were saying about prioritising economy and other issues. So the the Public Health Authority here in Sweden, it's, it's called Folkhälsomyndigheten. It has as part of its brief, it's important to look at health holistically and across Mm -hmm. all of society, which I think is a good thing. Um, And they've often fallen back on that is that they were looking very much at the impact of the pandemic as a whole. And as you're probably aware, that's also been something the Great Barrington Declaration people and urgency of normal people have been pushing Mm -hmm. for for, uh, throughout the pandemic as well. Uh, The issue is, of course, that there's been almost no actual assessment on those factors either. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how much has the pandemic impacted other aspects of health, and how much of that has been the result of um, precautions that have been taken and interventions, and how much is a result of actually spread of the virus? You know, here in Sweden, for example, while um, junior schools were not closed at all throughout the pandemic, and middle schools mostly weren't, my mm-hmm. kids, for example, school often was closed throughout the pandemic and and moved to distance learning because there were so was many teachers. High
0: school teachers- or are they? In yes.
1: So this, my, I've got uh, yeah three kids. And they were in middle school through the first year of the pandemic, and their school was regularly, well, actually closed for six months on distance learning uh, because of the there was so much spread of infection. And officially, the school was not the these schools were not closed in Sweden. So you'll hear <laughs> around the world, Sweden didn't close schools. Right now, in you fact, hear that the high
0: constantly. <laughs> you hear that
1: high, constantly. Now, in fact, the high schools uh, from grades 10, 11, and 12, basically 16 years old, 16, 18 and up, they were closed. And an OECD study actually found they were closed for for much longer than the OECD, OECD average and far longer than uh, our neighbours here in Scandinavia. Wow. Uh, and that's, again, because the virus was uh, at high levels for, for so long.
0: Continuing to circulate. That's right. Absolutely. And, I mean, this, this kind of idea of... Um... Why uh, not closing the schools was the plan? Can we can we talk Mm -hmm. about that? Because I know for you and I, it's kind of an obvious point. But I want to make sure that if people are listening to this and they're not, you know, people who have been closely following, you know, people like Martin Kaldorf, the Great Barrington Mm -hmm. Declaration and Lucy McBride and Lena Wen and Emily Oster here in the United States who have really used Sweden as a way to minimize um, infections and deaths in children uh, Mm -hmm. as being innocuous, but also as sort of being a necessary process of keeping society moving. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the motivations were for um, not closing schools?
1: Right. Well, you've got sort of the official story and then the unofficial story, uh, Mm -hmm. which has been uncovered over the the years. Now, one probably thing that's important to say about the paper is we only covered 2020 in this paper. That was the brief from the escape project, so the official story was that it's incredibly important to keep schools open uh, for the, the educational and health benefits for children, which I think is a, a reasonable point. Absolutely. Um, I actually became very interested in the, the pandemic response back in March of April 2020. I, I wasn't really working in this field, particularly on infectious diseases at the time. And I was watching one of the uh, the press conferences, and Anders Tegnell, the the uh, state epidemiologist, a uh, a journalist asked him about closing schools, and he said the research shows that closing schools doesn't help. Hmm. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And I'm a I'm a scientist, so I got onto PubMed and I looked up the research. And I discovered it actually said the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and so I immediately became very interested in what was going on here in Sweden because I thought, well, he's just outright lied uh, <laughs> or, he's, or he's ignorant. Right. <laughs> uh, neither is a good thing in the Mm-mm. person who's in charge of your pandemic response. So I I, uh, I started following it very closely from there. And then I looked f- further. Uh, another common comment you'll hear about Sweden is that we were the only country that actually followed the pandemic plan. Mm-hmm um it was Europe over the last couple of decades has actually been working on pandemic plans but they've been very they've been influenza pandemic plans that's what everybody thought was was right. coming another big influenza like um, bird flu or something else happening and i dug up all the influenza i dug up these pandemic plans and and guess what they talk about as being an effective intervention to slow down spread of infections is closing schools
0: mhm yeah i mean i remember looking at the who plans early on and saying Wow, I mean, it seems like uh pretty much the the first thing that we should be doing in a lot of these outbreaks is closing schools because it does it is this sort of central hub, right? Where you have a lot of people who are going to become asymptomatically infected who bring it home. And within households, we have, you know, intergenerational populations. And it's almost exactly. as if throughout the pandemic we've been pretending like, well, when kids are physically on the school campus, in the building, everything's fine. It's like you can't get infected inside Mm -hmm. of the uh, restaurant hut in the street. You can only get infected inside of the restaurant itself. You know, these kinds of pandemic fallacies and thinking, which, you know, we're told have data backing them and we're told have research backing them. But as you're saying, it's, you know, if you actually start looking into what some of the, like, Frameworks were that we had to work Mm. with going into the pandemic, they absolutely pointed to the direction of school school closures being a useful tool as a sort of circuit breaker.
1: Yeah, one of the excuses that was used is that there's this fear uh, Mm. that if the kids aren't in school, then they'll be out socializing more outside of school. And so therefore, that might increase the risk of infection. And this was a common pattern um, throughout the pandemic where we'd be told something couldn't be done because of the fear of the consequences of doing it for example we were we were told multiple times here in sweden that wearing masks might be a bad thing it might increase the risk of infection because people <laughs> would no longer social distance or they would touch their faces more which never made any logical sense anyway oh my gosh uh, and but the the the, the idea was though that if kids were socializing more outside of schools then that would increase infections uh i actually looked up where that came from. And this was a, a hypothesis, um, say, 15 years ago after various influenza epidemics. But it has been studied since then, and it was found that that did not, in fact, happen. But this science was never evaluated. This science was never uh, included in the in the preparation plans here. It was still this hypothetical fear of what might happen if you do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, for one, have noticed this as a pattern in... Um, within the medical profession.
0: Right, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that this kind of idea, these sort of fears of um, looming sort of behavioral dynamics that might mm-hmm. fuel add on infection vectors or, you know, there's there's been this conversation this whole time of like, well, mm-hmm. we have to balance COVID infections with all of these sort of social harms also that come mm-hmm. from closing schools, whether that's learning loss and the implication that children will, like, earn less money over the course of their lifetimes because of the pandemic disruption to the sort of claims that it's going to fuel a sort of epidemic of suicides in children. You know, mm. a lot of these frameworks are sort of based on this behavioral idea, and they're really centered around sort of managing fear and the idea that actually fear can kind of be worse than the virus itself. And this seems to be a kind of idea that was very... um you know, it had a lot of purchase. And I know in the past you've worked on behavioral health uh, technologies Mm -hmm. and interventions. I mean, do you feel like some of your work in that area kind of informed why you saw this as a little suspect?
1: Absolutely. And it's interesting if you look at pandemic response, until Mm -hmm. you get to vaccines, it's pretty much entirely behavioral, isn't it?
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: And around the world, there was very little input from behavioural scientists. Uh, United Kingdom did with the, the Nudge Group, um, uh-huh. and not based around nudging with Richard Thaler's well-known work in that area. Uh, but strangely enough, they kind of went off on some weird tangents. I've been a big fan of them for years. Um, and <laughs> I, I actually coined a term uh, called the, you know, we've got the infection fatality rate with, this, right. with viruses. I coined a term called the reputation fatality rate <laughs> because there's been numerous scientists around the world that I've uh, held in esteem for many, many, many years. And then they've come out and done some totally bizarre things in this pandemic. And I'm sure you know of many of them, more than one in the United States. And uh, and my view of them as scientists has absolutely plummeted. And um the Nudge Group was one of them. They were they were saying some bizarre things. And but even around the world, though, you've got all of the nearly all of the pandemic response has been driven by doctors, mm-hmm. and doctors actually have very little in the way of behavioural training. And yet they're the ones talking about whether people will change behaviour or talking about uh, risk assessments. How many how many risk analysis we have experts in in risk analysis have been involved in the pandemic response?
0: I mean, very, it's been very few. if any more uh, people have been more looking for that analysis to come from economists than from people who actually do, you know, health systems research. I feel like it's, mm. you know, when we think of risk analysis, um, you know, I obviously start thinking of in terms of like public health and uh, mm. environmental impacts, and then access, you know, the sort of financial toxicity aspects because we're in the United States and access to healthcare mm. is a huge problem here. Um, and that obviously will impact and modify sort of any public health problem. But it, it really feels like when people talk about risks now, they they talk about it in such a personalized way where it's really mm. just framed as sort of, you know, oh, the sort of healthy person's individualized risk as if the healthy person is kind of this perfect specimen that exists with no prior COVID infection, no pre-existing conditions and that, you know, and and with all the, the sort of um, economic tools to be able to um, fulfill these sort of behavioral interventions like social distancing, staying home, mm-hmm. being able to pay out of pocket and and these kinds of things, these financial um, sort of constraints to behavioral interventions in the United States are not necessarily the same um, situation in Sweden because you all do have a much different healthcare system. And one thing mm-hmm. that you say in the paper is that Sweden was actually quite quote, well-equipped to prevent the pandemic from becoming serious. Now, I mean, can we talk a little bit about, you mentioned the kind of dual message of saying that um, they're not pursuing herd immunity, that it's just a sort of quote-unquote side effect of the strategy, which I find hilarious. Um, And also the sort of gap between the official narrative that said, you know, it's safe for children, Mm -hmm. it's totally fine. And these internal emails that reflected actually a sort of deliberate strategy to, um, achieve herd immunity specifically through encouraging infections in children. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about how that fits into maybe the context of the healthcare system in Sweden as well.
1: Part of the issue we had here is, is that the entire pandemic response was basically three guys, mm-hmm. um, two really. So you had the, the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Stefan Leven, who took a back seat, but is ultimately the one responsible. All four including him then you have uh, johan um, carlson who is the general director of the public health authority and he's appointed by the government then you have uh, the the state epidemiologist uh andis mm-hmm.
2: Uh
1: but then the 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 next person uh, who was very very influential here was johan yaseki he's a professor and former head of the uh, former head of the public health authority and he was the one who employed Anders Tegnell. and uh, he actually referred to Johan Karlsson and Anders Tegnell as his boys. Mm. And he's been very influential. And he was also uh, interventional doing interviews around the world about the Swedish pandemic response and advising governments. Yeah. And he very, very, very much pushed this, this idea of herd immunity publicly and was very clear that this was the idea. Uh, Anders Tegnell and others were, it It was kind of very open in the first few months that this is actually what we were trying to achieve. We, we, we've, got PowerPoint slides from one of the, the local infectious disease control doctors. Sweden split up into health regions, and he was in charge of one of the health regions. And they basically have to implement the policies recommended by the public health agency. And mm. he has a, a slide standing up there on, on, on the stage and saying the goal is herd immunity. Mm. And then we had uh, Pete Tull, who was actually a former head of, the, uh, uh, of infectious diseases control in Sweden, and he actually wrote to Anders Tegnell basically saying, well, what's the options here? Um, <laughs> and, and outlining three different options. Uh, right. One was trying to, to suppress it. Uh, I don't remember what number two, was, but number three was herd immunity and thousands of people will die. Mm-hmm. And Anders Tegnell answered to him, well, we've gone through these. And yes, we've settled on number three. Wow. And this is very clear in the email. Now that email we couldn't access from the public health agency. Uh, it didn't exist. According, it it had been apparently been deleted, which is illegal. Wow. Uh, but Pitul actually provided it, and wow. um, so it, it was. But then after a, I don't know what the period was. After a, a couple of months, two or three months, it started to become like, um, no, 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 that's not the strategy. It's just a side effect true to uh no we never spoke about this at all um through to well we don't really have an overriding strategy in what we're doing we're just kind of reacting to the situation as it comes so there was this disconnect throughout the whole time and the most amazing thing to me was how the the swedish media and the swedish people behind them continually just accepted a complete rewriting of the the history of what was going on here and, and denying things even though we had clear evidence that this is what happened that was it was out in the open. There was nothing hidden.
0: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's kind of what I was getting to And I said the context of the health system, which is that it seems like in contrast to the United States that a lot of these decisions in Sweden were highly concentrated to, as you're saying, a sort of very limited group of people. My understanding from reading the paper was that, you know, technically um, the This sort of response was supposed to be coordinated by the prime minister, but that didn't happen. Is there a reason why that didn't happen or is it just sort of that (laughs) these personalities really just dominated and it sort of went from there?
1: Yeah, there was actually um, there's been several crises over the recent years, including the Indian Ocean tsunami that affected a lot of Swedes that were uh, uh, on holidays in Southeast Asia. Uh, There was also the sinking of the Estonia ferry in the Baltic some years ago where 500 people drowned, a very large ferry travelling from Estonia to Sweden sunk. And um, one of the the various inquiries into those things discovered said basically Sweden is really poor at um, handling crises. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our various people have pointed out that, well, Sweden hasn't been involved in a war in like 300, 400 years. We've managed to avoid World War I and World War II and and, and so the, the life has become very good in Sweden. We're not very good at crises. And that's very much seemed to be in the, the case here. So that when someone such as Anders Tignell basically stood up, was confident, and I um, hope I don't know whether you're going to have to censor this for your audience or not, but a, a Swedish uh, epidemiologist, um, Emma Franz actually wrote a book about the Swedish response and basically said he had big dick confidence. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: So the, the you know big dick energy is really um, yeah is the sort of problem here. At the, right. I mean that makes a lot of sense though. That kind of like reflects a lot of the media appearances that I've seen him do.
1: Well, that's right. And people people in a crisis they look for leadership, don't they? Right, and right. he was he was giving the appearance of leadership, so people basically let him take control. Now, in theory, his boss uh, Johan Karlsson was in charge. But from from what I understand, it was, and it was under Stignell and very much influenced by Johan Giusecki, who were the two guys who were really driving this strategy. Now, the intrig- interesting thing about the Swedish health system is its um, authority is, back, uh, is actually put in the regions, but the regions don't have the expertise.
2: Mm. And
1: so the regions in theory have the decision making, but they pretty much can't decide if they don't have the expertise. So they have to follow. So the... the at one stage, for example, the, it, it was bizarre. We were reading in the newspaper how a, region, a regional authority said they wanted to introduce masks or something, but the uh, the Swedish Public Health Authority said, no, you can't do that, so it didn't happen. <laughs> and then three days later, something didn't happen somewhere and the Public Health Authority was saying, well, that's their decision, we can't stop them. And there was this complete disconnect between the two messages. So it, it's they're the ones deciding... But we can tell them they can't do what they want to do. And then if they don't do it, it was their decision. It was just bizarre. And this happened throughout the pandemic and continues to happen.
0: Right. I mean, there are a couple instances that you mentioned in the paper, not just with the situation of masking, where you have um, local or regional authorities or unions trying to agitate for masking, um, particularly mm-hmm. like in care homes or long term care facilities, nursing homes. And you have the sort of centralized public health agencies sort of stepping in and um, pushing back on that. And you also, um, you guys also mentioned the fact that, here I'll quote, uh, this is from early on in the article, uh, the public health agency labeled advice from national scientists and international authorities as, quote, extreme positions, resulting Mm -hmm. in media and political bodies to accept their own policy instead. The Swedish people were kept in ignorance of basic facts such as airborne transmission, transmission. That asymptomatic individuals can be contagious, and that face masks both protect the carrier and others. What was the sort of reasoning that they were giving as to why they were, um, why the sort of centralized authorities were trying to um, discourage masking use?
1: Yeah, well, that's where it's interesting. If you go back to some of these emails we we managed to access through freedom of information laws, we actually found a letter to. I think it was the ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Control, so kind of the equivalent of the American CDC. Mm-hmm. And they were discussing recommending masks in 2020. And Understadnell wrote to them and uh, explicitly said that Sweden didn't support this and advised against this and that it would decrease trust in authorities if they did so.
0: Decrease trust?
1: Decrease trust because the messaging beforehand had been you know, even from WHO and the CDC and others had and CDC had been the masks were not necessarily useful uh, and perhaps dangerous. And he basically wrote and said, well, you can't now suggest masks because then people won't believe us anymore.
0: I mean, that's and kind that, of amazing.
1: Yeah. And we had the interesting thing was that um, somebody had actually rece- accessed this email earlier uh, and it had been completely censored.
0: <laughs>
1: and so wow. we couldn't see this, but we managed to get a copy of the uncensored version
0: yeah it's it's amazing. it's it really reflects a lot of the things we sort of see here in the us where obviously there's a very big difference here where um, instead of it sort of coming from the centralized authority, there's a lot of discretion um, in decentralized authority in the United mm-hmm. States, we kind of have the opposite problem where it's we sort of don't have a lot of trust in um, in centralized government. we don't mm-hmm. have a lot of resource sharing. we don't have a lot of information sharing. we don't have you know these sort of pathways that, Sweden has um, through its national health sort of system, but also through its public health apparatus. We've spent a lot of time in the United States over decades defunding and disconnecting various public health institutions from each other. Right. And we have a lot of reliance on the private sector here. There's kind of a preference for public private partnerships over government. That's actually that's
1: actually starting to happen here now.
0: Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Because, I mean, this is one thing that we talk about on the show all the time, which is that it's very frustrating to see. How broken these sort of preferences for um, using privatization to manage public health have been in the United States. And it's something mm. that is being exported all throughout the world. I mean, there is all this conversation in the UK about um, messing with the NHS, inspired by mm. consultants from America's United Healthcare, who's been going over there trying to convince Boris Johnson for years now that they should privatize the NHS. Um, But there, you know, there are all these instances where essentially, like regardless of the the system, like both um, responses have redounded to this kind of sunk cost in like we can't admit having made any mistakes because that Mm. will undermine trust. And also towards sort of ignoring some very obvious scientific evidence in, you know, sort of in exchange for preferring to use these frames of personal responsibility, individual health as the kind of way of mediating the, the pandemic. And I wonder, you know, if you feel like the pandemic has sort of accelerated this process of, you know, sort of preference for privatization at all in the, in uh, Sweden.
1: Yeah. I I don't know, actually. I, um, it's, it's been happening here for some time and I've, I've been told that quite a few of the political parties here actually have, uh, American advisors now. So it's this, this, um, Conservative view of and privatization of public health is is been spreading throughout Europe and elsewhere, and in Australia, where I'm where I'm from as well, and both uh, Sweden Sweden has moved towards a more hybrid system. So I'm obviously I'm a fan of universal healthcare, uh, and I can say, yesterday I had a, an experience with this as, as I've told you pr- prior to the call. My son and I both have been suffering long COVID, and I was meeting with a yeah. specialist yesterday in the public health system. Uh, with my son, and he actually advised us uh, it was a good idea to go and see a expert cardiologist um, in the private system.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Interesting. Now we still get a lot of um, that private system still gets a lot of funding through the government, so it's not like we suddenly have to pay thousands of dollars or anything. It's still much, much cheaper here. But this um, the, the the existence of the public health system should, in theory, make a, a pandemic response
3: Better. Much easier and more right. effective,
1: right. and I I've, I talk often. It's I don't think this is in the paper, but I talk often about it in um in social media. In that, if you compare Sweden to say Europe as a whole and look at mm-hmm. rough metrics like excess mortality, which I'm I'm not actually a big fan of using as a as a measure for uh, pandemic response uh, effectiveness, Sweden's kind of in the middle now after two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh. But we have huge numbers of advantages. Like we we do have a fairly good public health system. We have a, a big advantage in that we have one of the highest percent of people that live alone in um, in the world. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the networking that happens with schools and people mm-hmm. then go home and infect their families. But if you're a university student and you get infected at, at, at university and you're told stay home when you're sick, and you do, but you live alone. You don't infect anybody else,
0: right? Which is a very rare occurrence for a university student to not to live alone in the United States.
1: Yeah, but here it's it's quite common. Um, yeah. One room apartments are incredibly common. You know, when I was at university in Australia, I lived in a share house with like ten other students, and mm-hmm. people lived in dorm rooms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now there are dorms as well that people live in, but it's also even young people in their in their late teens, twenties, and thirties all live in one room apartments. Very, very common. Even the elderly, they uh, often retain apartments and and live alone and, until the end of their lives. So this is these are huge advantages that we have, and this is common throughout the Nordics. And and this is one of the things that's irritated me throughout this pandemic is people are all, "What about Sweden?" And I'm like, "Well, what about Norway?"
0: Right.
1: You know, Norway has had uh, per capita a tenth of the the deaths that Sweden has had. Right. And um, and nobody talks about them. Um, right.
0: I mean, this was astonishing. Um, There was LA Times coverage of your uh, of this paper. And in it, they they sort of rattled through um, just comparing Sweden's seven day average death rate to a bunch of other countries. And they were talking about how basically, you know, we we always talk about Sweden in the United States, though, right? But you have these examples right next door, of Norway where the uh, Sweden's 7-day average death rate from covid was 5.25 per million residents and Norway was 0.092 um yeah. which is just a you know it's a very stark difference and if i recall correctly i think i remember reading recently that iceland also did pretty well um and denmark did better than sweden though still had some problems and I, I, you know, it's kind of interesting because regardless though, Sweden is like held up as this fantastic example in the sort of global sphere of success, but it's just not reflected in the sort of numbers or in the analysis.
1: No, and it's entirely ideological. It's it's basically the people who are who, um, uh, anti-lockdown, I'll say, um, even though I dislike the term because nobody ever defined what a lockdown is and they seem to yeah. move it around. Um, using it as, a, as, a, as an ideological example. But um, what, what many people don't realise is that um, I, I mentioned this, I did a thread on this on Twitter some a couple of months ago, that Sweden actually had the longest lockdown in the world. Mm. Because if you look at our laws, and this is, again, something that changed, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was all, uh, yes, herd immunity, this is the way to go, and then all of a sudden there's not herd immunity. Well, our laws direct, we, we have these things called uh, public advice that they were giving out and as recommendations. But mm-hmm. if you look at the actual law and infections control, we are obliged to follow this advice. Interesting. Unless, unless you can show that you uh, did something else equivalent. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you don't wear a mask, you're, you showed you did something else like health distance, I don't know. And the Johan Carlsen, the general director of the um, public health agency, explicitly said at the beginning that this is not just advice that you can choose to follow or not. It is obligatory to follow it. Hmm. Um, and this was the same, it was on the, the health agency website. But within a couple of months, that got changed to, oh no, this is just recommendations. It it appeared to me almost as if it, it became part of the image of Sweden that we just we have recommendations, the people trust the government, and we follow the advice. Now, I actually think that's mostly true. Sweden has very high trust in government. So do the other Nordics. This is Mm -hmm. one of the big advantages over here. But at the beginning, the elderly were basically told, stay at home. Don't even go to the shop to go Mm. shopping. And Mm -hmm. various uh, volunteer groups started up to help elderly with shopping. And this was at the same time the health agency said, this is not just a recommendation. You have to follow this. OK, mm. so this was an effectively a stay at home order for the elderly and at risk. And it stayed in place for um, at least, I think, eight months mm. so that those people and the people who followed it. And there were many who followed it, including apparently the royal family, the king, were under lockdown for eight months. And this is never mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Never. And I mean, the- never in discussions. No. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. But it, that's the longest lockdown in the world. But it's but it was this it was this was focus protection, as the uh, the Great Barrington right. people put it. And if you look at at the Great Barrington Declaration, what they recommend and what they say, that's pretty much what they've said: is that the at risk basically need to isolate uh, when the virus is spreading, right? Which yes. is kind of like all the time right now, right?
0: <laughs> All the time and everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there was this kind of decision that was made, it seems like, to start triaging care once people Mm -hmm. who are older started getting sick. And as you were saying, uh, we sort of briefly touched on it earlier in the interview, it was one of the more controversial findings that Mm -hmm. uh, you've all talked about that people have been very sort of Mm -hmm. upset to hear. Um, And I I know it's upsetting, but I wonder if we could sort of talk about this, because not only were uh, there sort of being masks, mask use was being discouraged, there starts to be this decision that's made in terms of triage where people with comorbid Mm. conditions or who are older um, without consulting the families, um, people were given, it seems, palliative care instead of things like oxygen or treatment for COVID-19.
1: That's right. I, um, I think I was actually one of the first, not the first person to notice there was something odd going on just by looking at the data. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at ICU data in March and April in 2020. And I noticed that um, there was a change that kind of didn't make any sense to me in, in mid-April or the beginning of April even, and I broke down the data by age and I discovered that all of a sudden, even though cases and deaths were increasing in the elderly, the number of them in, in ICU had decreased dramatically. Hmm. And I'm like, what's going on here? It um, doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And I wrote to one of the newspapers and they actually did an article about this and, and confirmed what I was saying. And then uh, around about the same time, a, uh, a doctor by the name of John Tallinger uh, here in Sweden then uh, he actually came out as Dr. Whistleblower. He was mm. anonymous at the time and actually released documentation and guidelines showing that, yes, in fact, what had been happening was they'd been told to to stop, to not send the elderly to hospital, that mm. they should be taken care of in aged care homes. Um, now, of course, then in the aged care homes, they don't have the equipment or the training to um, administer right. oxygen, apparently, so there was no oxygen being uh, being used, and they were basically given a I think called a clinical frailty scale and look at the patient and if they match this this and this then um, then just give them palliative care.
3: Wow.
1: Uh, now legally they're supposed to be assessed by a doctor, but the doctors were all um, basically under instructions to avoid seeing patients. Now when I had COVID, I was told don't come anywhere near us, you know, stay home. So oh. I could never get t- I could never get tested uh which was then a problem on my record when I got long covid because I said well you never had a positive test well no oh hardly gosh. anybody did in the first in wave one right so these so these elderly were basically then given morphine and there were there have been numerous cases um where families found out about this and argued against it and there's a, there's a very long bike race here in Sweden around a, an enormous lake and there was actually a, an elderly person who was basically put into palliative care, and his uh, family learned about this and argued about it, and um, yeah, two years later, he was doing a 300-kilometre bike race. <laughs> um, so he, he obviously <laughs> he was not on the edge of death. So they weren't treated, but one of the big – and at the time, Tallinger was – was and anybody else, including myself, was viciously attacked for pointing out that this was going on. It was basically mm-hmm. "There's you're accusing doctors of murder, there is no way this would happen, and everyone was very, very upset about it. And I was like, well, what's going on with the data here? And we have these guidelines. We have these policies that basically say that, oh, you don't understand it. That's not what's happening. Uh, And eventually there was actually an official government inquiry um, by the um, IEVO, IVO. they're called. uh, They're they're supposed to, to look into healthcare issues and complaints. And they confirmed this. But even today, and in the past week, and this paper has been out. We're getting attacked and being told this would never happen. You didn't understand this to happen. But it's, it's been confirmed by this government investigation. It's been confirmed by the government's own Corona Commission. Um, it's been confirmed by an analysis by the Royal uh, Academy of Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences. So there's nothing new that we said here. We've known about this right. for for a year and a half, uh, but it is still denied despite all of the evidence. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we kind of missed the, what an impact that was going to have on all the people around the world who didn't know that this was happening because we've been talking about it for a long time.
0: Right, right. I mean, there's this discussion in the paper about the fact that part of this is sort of um, reflective of, let's say, like a sort of ageist or ableist mm-hmm. sort of culture. Um, within Sweden that there was kind of a general sentiment that aging is a kind of um, negative process of decay. We don't there isn't sort of the approach to aging that you might necessarily think mm-hmm. of in a country that has these kind of generous welfare supports, right? It's more um, people tend to, it seems like, Uh, Hold quite a lot of prejudice in Sweden towards aging. There's this interesting section in the supplemental and I, you know, I study um, disability in the United Mm -hmm. States and I study the sort of political economy of what we how we decide what we feel like we can afford when it comes to protecting Mm -hmm. the most vulnerable and I thought it was so interesting that in the in the paper, you you know, you all talk about how there was um, limited public outcry within Sweden mm. itself. And you sort of attribute it to this narrative of um something that we've been covering a lot on the show. We've been calling deaths. Pulled from the future. And it's this kind of pervasive cultural sentiment that these deaths don't matter as much because they were people who were, you know, quote unquote, close to death. And whether that reflects the reality or not, as you pointed out with the instance of the person who was able to, you know, two years later after COVID recovered and ran a big race, right? You know, these kinds of ideas about who is expected to die soon don't often necessarily reflect the reality, but more. Reflect a sort of prejudice towards a group of people right and there's a there's a sort of discussion of the fact that pre pandemic Sweden um, already ranked quite low in terms of uh, sort of perception or regard for elders. Um, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic
1: yeah there's a um There's a survey called the World Value Survey, which coincidentally is actually run by an organisation based in Stockholm. Yeah. Uh, and um and sweden comes out as being relatively low in in terms of their regard and respect for the elderly uh you know a, a lot of asian cultures have very high respect and sweden's one of the lowest it's also very interesting to look historically there's um there's a thing in in sweden called at the Stupa. I don't know if you've seen the movie Midsummer. I or haven't personally,
0: but I have heard of no. it.
1: <laughs> I, I haven't actually seen it myself either, but in the movie, they, they basically talk about sacrificing the elderly oh. um, when they become basically a burden of society and they, they kind of jump off a cliff. Oh, and, like Logan's um,
0: Run, but uh, yeah, more appropriate. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough to remember that show. And, um <laughs> And so there are actually cliffs around Sweden that are, uh, are named after this. Uh, whether it's true or not is unclear. But there is also historical records talking about um, burning the elderly when they they're un, un, unable to contribute longer wow. as well. Now I'm a I'm a I'm a believer that most myths actually have some kind of origin in in history. Right. And and so I think there has been this 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 cultural belief that the that there comes a point where your elderly are no longer contributing. Mm-hmm. Now you you talk about those, um, what was the phrase you used? Deaths taken.
0: Deaths pulled from the future. Yeah, it was from, from the future. It was from a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article right. early on in the pandemic. And it was a sort of discussion of saying, well, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are dying right now, but we're going to have to wait for the data because it might turn out that the people who are dying were going to die an- anyways, but it might be several months until we know. And so it yeah, was well, this we're, kind we're of we're framework, s- Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're still getting that even in the last week, somebody. Uh, the, still, yeah, the, I'm here. The favourite defence for Sweden now is to look at excess mortality compared to other countries, uh, other countries that, in my opinion, there's no relevance to compare with because they're such completely different societies. With maybe, right, absolutely. You know, you go, you go to Spain and the large families living in one building compared to Sweden, it doesn't make sense. Uh, ridiculously, at one stage, the uh, Public Health Authority put it was putting grass up every time they had their meetings comparing Sweden to somewhere else in Europe. And mm-hmm. they were actually comparing Sweden to Liechtenstein, you know, which is <laughs> yeah. And so I went, like, well, our deaths are very high, but if we look at Liechtenstein. <laughs> It's like a higher death rate this week. It's like, how can you compare to Liechtenstein? And 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 Anders Tignell actually was saying, well, we can't really compare Stockholm to to Oslo. We need to compare it to somewhere more like Stockholm, like London. And I'm like, has he ever been to London? It's nothing like Stockholm. Right. It's completely different. And this continues to this day that, and in a response to our paper, people were, What about excess mortality? Now, excess mortality is a um very difficult metric because here in Sweden, Mortality was decreasing significantly for 20 years. It's been going Mm -hmm. down. Uh, And, in fact, this was continuing in the first three months of 2020. We had had record low mortality going on. Whereas if you look at a a place like, I think, even Germany and Denmark, Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the trends there, it's mostly to do with age distribution of population. Mortality was going up. So if you do a, a basic comparison on excess mortality, but if mortality was going up, you're going to Uh, overestimate the impact of the pandemic because mortality Mm -hmm. was already going up, whereas somewhere in Sweden you're going to underestimate the impact on the mortality. So it's really quite difficult to to do comparisons with this, but we're constantly being told, oh, look at the excess mortality.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But that's just this idea that, you know, these people were going to die anyway sometime in the near future. Right. and, and at the beginning, we got the excuse in Sweden why we had more deaths was the dry tinder, that less people died from the flu the year before than compared to Norway. Oh, my gosh. So therefore, they were just dying now from COVID.
0: Love to see the social Darwinist argument just full yeah. on, out, in full display. People like to say eugenics yeah. is over, never existed past the end of World War II, and here you go. Well, folks. we actually had an,
1: <laughs> a eugenics, an institute for eugenics here in Sweden up until, I think, 1976.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's a. It's it's, it's not gone it, anywhere. <laughs>
1: it never actually even officially closed down. It actually became part of another department at um at the university.
0: That's actually quite but typical was, for most eugenics mm. institutes. Actually, they were just sort of mm. uh, renamed, rebranded, and re-enveloped into academic institutions.
1: Yeah. So this this dry tinder effect. Then, well, then you. But we you, when you look at the data, it's not true, and when you look at um you look at the average age of the people who died and how what their life expectancy was. It was like a se- another seven or eight years.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: people would misuse life expectancy and say, well, the life expectancy was 82 and these people are all 82. And that's not how life expectancy works.
0: Right, exactly. You know, and a, an
1: 82-year-old actually has like seven or eight years at least to live on average. So th- these are the type of years we're actually taking away from people. Mm-hmm. And this is now then reflected in the data where uh, for 2020 and 2021, Life expectancy actually got decreased uh, mm. significantly around the world, including the United States, but here in Sweden. And then amazingly, an article came out in the newspapers last year that, um, oh, good news, pensions are increasing. Oh my gosh. And the pensions were increasing because, you know, it's Everyone money does. that's in pension funds and they had less people to pay it out to.
0: Mm. Of course. Now,
1: if this was just deaths pulled from six months in the future, how the heck did that happen? Right. Right. It, it makes no sense.
0: No, absolutely. And I, I mean, you. there's discussion in the paper, too, about how in 2020, there were also deliberate efforts to hide some of the data from deaths in care homes. Um, you talk about how some municipalities refused to declare the number of deaths in care homes and that there was often sort of this attempt in a couple of different places to kind of keep death rates, quote unquote, covered up regionally there's discussion of an outbreak in a maternity ward in a hospital that was initially kept secret. And there's this kind of um, pattern it seems uh, between not just the strategy, but these kinds of approaches to mistakes. I mean, I use the word sunk costs earlier because it just mm. rings us so obvious when you talked about um, the technology, like big Dick energy and his sort of approach mm. of like, well, we can't admit masking because then we admit mistake. And that's, To me, a kind of wild framework, because uh, obviously, I think in terms of like uh, accountability and public trust, like in my opinion, the best thing you could possibly do is admit a mistake and be honest and, um, you know, sort of reinforce trust. But it's almost like the opposite tactic has been taken and that what really they felt like was the only way to reinforce trust was to actually... Conceal some of these details of the reality of COVID from the population at large.
1: Yeah, and that's actually something that's happening right now uh, with long COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. I've had the the data on the number of people with post-COVID or long COVID in Sweden is very, very difficult to understand and update. And, in fact, something like 70,000 people now officially have the, the diagnosis, but I pretty much had the demand that the diagnosis got put on my journal and also for my son, they've only only recorded something like two or three hundred children with post-COVID. But mm. two different doctors have told me that the um, the Department of Health and Welfare actually did a a webinar where they told doctors, they instructed doctors to use the code sparingly, avoid using the code. They don't want to talk about it. Basically, they avoid. Want to it. Yeah. So they want to, you know, this and this is. This isn't so much, it's not falsifying data, but it's just making decisions to mm-hmm. make the data look better. Um, right.
0: Right. And I, I mean, these are also decisions that we we constantly see sort of in the space of rare diseases too, where, mm-hmm. you know, when, when public accountability is sort of wrapped into pathology, I think you often see... Um, it's easy to see an advantage in sort of policing mm. the boundaries of a diagnosis. And I think with long COVID, um, like many, you know, I think there's a strong parallel. Many people have mentioned this or brought this up. There's a strong parallel with a lot of other post-viral mm. illnesses where yep. you have a high degree of skepticism from providers. So it's difficult to get mm. a diagnosis. You're more likely to go to the doctor over and over and over again, be accused yep. of malingering until you find anyone that will believe you. But, you know, I think with long COVID, because of the situation with testing, right, because we have this diagnostic test that Mm -hmm. kind of is this precursor to understanding if someone has Mm -hmm. an infection or not, which is not necessarily the sort of same way that people track their diagnosis for other uh, post-viral illnesses. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. like I never had to show a test that said that I had had Epstein-Barr when, Mm -hmm. you know, three years later I started having autoimmune disease symptoms pop up. Everyone just sort of started, you know, discussing those symptoms within the context of the autoimmune disease, because mm. there's a sort of existing understanding mm. that that these things happen, right? And that they happen, there's sort of sometimes a time delay. But COVID has, see, people seem to have this kind of obsession with the verifiability of COVID, which is obviously a very fraught and incomplete picture and is mediated by people's access to testing. And it's, it's problematic because, not only have so many people become infected who don't who cannot necessarily like afford to be self testing in the United States, mm-hmm. or we have a lot of people who are low income workers who have long COVID because they've been at work all along with very little protections and quite mm-hmm. high levels of spread. I mean, a lot. I think most of the people that I know in Florida, I lived in Florida for six years. Most of the people I know in Florida have um, gotten COVID. About half of them have long COVID most of those people are people who work in the service industry or schools yeah. and so yep. it's kind of like these patterns are showing up right but a lot of those people who are going to the doctor right now they don't have that positive covid test because testing in florida has been incredibly inaccessible and it's i think people with long covid are really in this shitty situation where they're um you know they're experiencing a disease that is incredibly marginalized. Um, They're, you know, welcome to the club, like (laughs) rare diseases uh, are not studied. It is a a major problem. And we have no idea what the long-term impacts of long COVID are. And yet we, I think most people think it's totally fine to become infected with COVID and that their chance of actually getting long COVID is very low. And it's just so frustrating because as someone who has lived with a a post-viral autoimmune disease for over a decade, I really feel like I'm watching an oncoming train barrel towards our health systems, right? That we are just absolutely not prepared to accommodate, not yeah, just absolutely. in terms of scale, but in terms of like compassion and approach to treating people, because we really don't have a comprehensive approach to dealing with these conditions. I mean, the Uni- like the United States, often if you have MECFS cfs a sort of very common post-viral illness that a lot of people have, used to be called chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. We don't really use that word anymore because it had a lot of stigma associated with that uh, diagnostic label. But, you know, it's like people who are in that category, right? They're they're not necessarily going to be um, receiving care. And we're seeing the same thing with long COVID. We're seeing these kinds of delays. We're seeing like preference for recommending exercise therapy. And that's that's actually contradictory to most of the actual evidence that we have about how to effectively treat these conditions. Yes. And there's been a long battle in the UK to stop exercise therapy for people with ME-CFS, which has been, you know, decades of work from patient advocates trying to assert, you know, when doctors are telling us we need to sort of exercise, it's actually making a lot of people worse. And that mm. sort of compounded with the way that we socially just dismiss and negate long COVID is a, a, a disaster waiting to happen. And it, I mean, it's something I think about every day, which is sort of like, it's, you know, I'm i am glad that you are feeling better and recovered, but you know, it's like long-term, we're not prepared to to help people like you navigate these things. We're really not prepared at all, basically, no matter what country you're in.
1: Well, I'm, you know, I'm in a kind of, a, I'm a scientist. I'm in a kind of a unique position. I, and um, I work for myself. I spend my own time. I don't, uh, I've got some income, I, I, so I don't have to worry about having to go to a job and all these other things. So I can spend a lot of time reading the research and understanding what's going on. And um, doctors have now learned that if I'm coming in with a, right. for myself and my son, that they're going to, the doctors are learning now that they're going to come out of the session knowing more about the <laughs> research and science on on long COVID than they went into it because I'm teaching them and telling them what they should be doing. The only, like with my son, for example, he's, he's missed an entire term of school, so he couldn't go at all. Uh, And then, since then, he's only been able to go like two or three days a week. This has been for more than a year. And it was only about three weeks ago. No, it's probably a month ago now. There was uh, actually an organization here in in Sweden, Doctors to Doctors. These are doctors who have gotten long COVID, who are Mm. now looking and trying to put out guidelines. And I printed out a page from their website. Here's the list of tests you should be doing um, as a starting point. And I gave this to my son's doctor and she kind of grumbled about, it. I was just, yeah, yeah, do you want this back? And I said, no, take this. I'd like these tests being done. And she's, so she apparently had started running through the test. And the first beginning was looking at blood test. And she literally rang up like three days later when she got the blood test results and said, take him to ER straight away. Wow. <laughs> he's been sick for more than a year, but now she sees the blood test showing he's got Clotting happening. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I know clotting's happening. This is like a standard thing with long COVID. We've known about this for a long time, but the primary healthcare in particular know nothing about this stuff. Right. And uh well, I know that I, I made a mistake with mine because I couldn't get tested with the first time I had COVID. And but um about eight months later, I decided, well, I'll go do an antibody test so I can prove I had COVID. And it was just negative. Now mm. we've since learned that. The antibodies wane a lot over time, eight right. months. And secondly, that having a lower, a poor antibody response is actually a risk factor for getting long COVID. So you're actually more likely if you're a long COVID sufferer to get a negative on an antibody test, even though you have had COVID. And this is a this is a problem that a lot of the research where people have downplayed uh, mm-hmm. long COVID get wrong. They they say, oh, this person had no antibodies, therefore they never had COVID. Therefore, this is this is not COVID that causing them to be tired and we'll compare the number of tired people, you know, with the other groups. And it's, it's just bad science. Right. Right. and so then when I went, so when I, when I finally got to see a doctor, which took like nine months after I first had acute COVID, because you couldn't get the healthcare here during the pandemic, uh, the acute phases of the pandemics, they said, basically stay at home. We don't want to see even you. For
0: all, even for all that creative triaging they did to keep yeah, out of the exactly. ice open, gosh.
1: And we couldn't get tested. And you talk about difficulty in testing in, in, in the US right now, it, you cannot get tested In Sweden, as a member of the public, for at least a month now.
0: My gosh.
1: There is is no public testing. You can buy a a rapid antigen test if you want yourself, but they're not cheap and it's not recorded the result anywhere. Right. So it's only people that are hospitalized now that are tested. So everybody's pointing at their data on Sweden going, look, all the cases have dropped dramatically. Well, yeah, that's because we stopped testing anybody. <laughs> Gosh. But of course, oh. I went along to the doctor with long COVID and he looked at my results and I said, well, you got no anybody, so you didn't have COVID. You're sure it's not anxiety? And I'm like, have you looked at my oxygen results I'm showing you here? I've been down to like 85% and stuff like this. How does that happen from stress?
0: Yeah, Typically, uh, you know, anxiety attacks don't produce um, sustained hypoxia longer than like the immediate yeah. one, <laughs> but sure, but this, this, what the even, doctor wants to say. This
1: even happened to me when I got a reinfection in the last year. I, went oh. into, I, I actually went to, um, like many people, I actually got through. It was okay. I improved a bit, and then the second week I suddenly got much worse, and my, my wife took me into ER, and it took seven hours before I got, actually finally got to see a doctor um so I'm waiting in ER but they've hooked me up to the machines that go ping and everything and I had to get the nurses to turn off the alarm that was warning them. my oxygen levels were dropping too low because I was just wanting to sleep and it right. was just constantly bleep 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 and finally I get to see a doctor and I'm sitting up and I'm talking and anyone who has long COVID and measures their oxygen knows that often if you're a little bit active the oxygen levels come back up again and um I'm Talking to him and he's looking, well, I'm looking at all your stuff and it looks fine. Your blood pressure's fine. Heart rate's been okay. Oxygen looks good. And I'm saying, but it's been dropping down below 85% all day. And he's like, what? And I said, well, look at the records. And he says, oh, we're not recording that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like the number one thing with COVID. So this was right. an acute COVID case. I had I'd purchased myself a Bluetooth um, oxygen, blood oxygen meter, which I was wearing and had been recording everything on my phone. And I showed it to him. And uh, I ended up being in hospital for a week, which is normally people are in hospital COVID for about three or four days.
0: Yeah, um, I'm sorry.
1: But it, they weren't even going to admit me. And um, the scary thing was later I looked at the statistics. I'm glad I didn't look at them beforehand. That one in seven people who were hospitalized at that time died. They never came out of hospital. Yeah. Uh, so it was, yeah. But Yeah. Well, um,
0: I mean, it's. It, I'm first of all. I'm sorry that you've experienced this. I mean, this is. Uh, there are,
1: there's peop- many, many people who had it far, far worse than myself. So yeah. um, and they are continuing to because of this decision that uh, we have to live with COVID.
0: Absolutely, and I, I, I think our recent decisions are only going to make this, this scenario much worse. And it's really for me. Obviously, I worry um, about the the effects of like the actual infections and the actual deaths mm-hmm. that are occurring from these primary infections, but I much more worry about the long term impacts on all of the people with long COVID because as someone who's been in this, yeah. you know, perspective for a long time, you know, we don't have any we don't have any thing actually to take care of people uh like you and i that's set up we i mean we have all these systems for blaming individuals for denying mm-hmm. them care and for writing off their symptoms yep. as mm-hmm. a psychiatric issue but we don't have any comprehensive approaches to managing diseases like this long term
1: no a chronic illness has never been uh no. yeah. well handled but i i actually i started saying this back in 2020 i think there may be a, a, a an unfortunate positive, if we can put it that way, out of this, in that, um, and this is already happening. I'm seeing this now. I experienced that this week. When we went to the my son's specialist yesterday, it's the second time he'd been to see him. The first time he went with his mother. This time with me. And my son said afterwards is that the doctor's approach was completely different. It had changed over. It was six months since he last saw him, mm. uh, and that the doctor was far more sympathetic and far more knowledgeable. And of course, what had happened. Is he'd had long COVID for three, four oh. months? The doctor, and this is what we're seeing around the world. There are so many health professionals that've been affected now that suddenly they're taking this seriously, and I think this will have a flow-on effect to ME sufferers and other other people like yourself from chronic um, diseases. That there's going to be there's going to be so much impact from this that it can no longer be ignored because, this, and we're already seeing this in the economic data. You know, they're talking about in the US and the UK like. There's a million people that haven't returned to work. Where are they? Mm-hmm. And it's like, right. oh, we'll have a look at the data. There's a million people with long COVID. You know, maybe there's a bit of a hint we should see here.
0: Right, right. No, I mean, and I, I think these these sort of situations, um, you know, where there are mass disabling events, the sort of most recent instances of that uh, in the United States, at least, are not necessarily uh, happening to adults. Um, like we have the polio epidemic, which for many years sort of created um, concentrated waves of disabled people, but it affected children, right? So it's people. Mm. Who, um, and the, the you know the the people who um, became disabled who survived polio infections, which again it was like a very small perf- percentage of infections that actually became serious, which makes this whole argument of like, oh, well, outcomes in children are, you know, bad outcomes are very rare, like specious bullshit. And,
1: and the thing with polio is that uh, a lot of the worst outcomes took many, many years to show. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. Uh, but these waves sort of that that happened in polio in particular, and I'm also thinking about tuberculosis, these, mm-hmm. these happened in a lot of young people. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of young people, a lot of children, um, young people in the case of tuberculosis who were factory workers, for example. And there was this real sort of concern about contraction in the labor force that drove a lot mm-hmm. of the policies to manage these diseases um, because there was concern that sort of we were disabling generations of workers. But there wasn't the position where it was like the people in the sort of seat of medical authority were themselves being disabled they were affected through their families, through their mm-hmm. social relations, but they themselves were not as susceptible to bad outcomes from, you know, polio, because this is not like, you know, in terms of disease process, you know, it doesn't affect adults the same way. And what I do, you know, hope is that in the situation with long COVID, because it's fairly an indiscriminate condition, right, that that there is some recognition from people who are within, you know, sort of entrenched medical establishment who might not have, any sort of prior approach to thinking about disease beyond the sort of um, the narrow billing cycle of sort of the clinical encounter, which is like a Mm. sort of lot of how it's oriented around is these sort of cyclical experiences, which doesn't match up with the durational (laughs) aspect of these diseases, right? You know, Mm. I I do hope that, that there is something different in this situation. But my concern also at the same time is that, you know, we have this... We have this incredible tendency to sort of only value people uh, in our societies relative to their ability to work. And these conditions do really interfere with someone's ability to um, hold down a job or be able to um, stand for long periods of time. And I, you know I, I, I worry in the United States that our sort of safety net systems are, not at all. Sort of even equipped to accommodate this many disability applications, and there there are all these sort of structural changes that we should have made a year and a half ago to our systems of supporting people who are living with disabilities and chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. But that you know we're two years in now with these changes in infections. Without testing, we're only going to increase the the long COVID population with. Without any plan, right? Without any plan to receive these people and help them. Well,
1: well, the the, the current strategy, are, the current strategy amount are, uh, uh, amongst most of the Western world is that we get infected by this virus a couple of times a year. Yes. You know, so so long COVID. You know, like anywhere up to fifty percent of people will have it for kind of like three six months uh, longer term, where it's longer term disabling. Looks like it's probably under five percent. But okay, so if it's 5% every time, we don't really know here. It could be, um, you know, so you you get it twice a year, is that 10%? And Mm -hmm. so if you're 20, by the time you're 30, the odds you've got long COVID are like 100% uh, rolling the dice every time. And one of the most obscene things is, we talked earlier about risk um, analysis of the risks of the pandemic, is when you look back, uh, this same thing happened with MERS and with SARS. There was hmm. one bit of research in Canada that showed that 10 years after they'd been affected by SARS healthcare workers in Canada, nearly half of them had not been able to return to work. Wow. So we knew this before, well, when the pandemic started, if anybody had looked. But I cannot right. find anywhere in the world that actually incorporated this knowledge into right. their ben- pandemic handling, the precautionary principle thrown out the door. Right. Uh, and and to me that's that's Obscene and and it's also 100% predictable now. Now we know this is a problem. Okay, mm-hmm. we know that there's a certain percentage of people getting long COVID. So we know that allowing people to get infected every year is going to cause this. So why in hell are we making this decision to just let the virus spread and live with it? It's just bizarre. And and what's really bizarre is if if you think it's getting pushed by corporate interests, it makes no sense for them. Right. Know? Sick people aren't working, and sick people aren't buying stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. it makes zero sense under on, on, no matter which direction you look at it, 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 it just seems to be—it's it's sunk costs uh, and very right. much sunk costs in terms of ideology. Okay, this is what we've chosen to believe. We cannot admit we're wrong. We have to keep pursuing this path.
0: Right. No, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, this this sort of uh, we do talk a lot about on death panel, how these economic priorities, right, the sort of maintenance of of normal consumptive practices and um, that that's been a huge component of reopening. But a big component of it, too, is this absolutely speeches, just completely um, kind of out of honestly, frankly, this kind of framework, I think people pull out of their ass, which is the, the fear is worse than the virus itself. And that that's really where a lot of the sunk cost lies is in this kind of idea that I think we have about a good society is is a body politic that is healthy. And if we acknowledge that there are these sort of conditions that are making our body politic less healthy, right, then that reflects mm-hmm. poorly on us as a sort of body nation. And so it's this kind of obsession, um, you know, this ableist obsession with like presenting this kind of um, best self, most productive country, most productive workforce. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what we're sort of doing in that moment, right, is we're actually like fueling and creating more disability and making mm-hmm. this problem that actually the people who accuse uh, those who want to, you know, continue pandemic precautions of being paranoid, you know, it's frankly kind of funny because they come off as quite paranoid themselves, actually more so paranoid about these sort of like broader, you know, social implications of fear and and what that could do to people's psyche and society. You know, it's ridiculous when you're comparing it to the sort of daily suffering that people with long COVID are experiencing, mm. not even to mention all the people who have died or just suffered from their Infection for you know sometimes weeks. When I had a COVID breakthrough infection right after my booster, I was Mm -hmm. sick for like the entire month of October.
1: Yeah, and Um, this is not unusual. And we're now having people confirmed cases of reinfections within six weeks of of each other. Right
0: and and you know it's it's not just the infection too for for high risk people like myself a lot of it's talked about oh well you you know you're more vulnerable and so the fear is death well not just that like i'm on a, a infusion that i need to function that i have every 4 weeks if i get sick My infusion cycle is messed up. My Mm -hmm. treatment is delayed. My nurse cannot come into the house because she sees a ton of other vulnerable patients like me. Mm -hmm. And so it's like there are all these compounding effects to infection. And we just are acting as if it's this sort of innocuous, benign nothing. And it's, it's just so stupid. Frankly, I rarely use that word, but it's stupid.
1: Yeah, I, I entirely agree with you. It just it just makes no sense uh, when you look at the data and you understand like even if even if you just look at the number of people that have risk factors, and if you're only worried about mortality and forget about chronic illness, there's a huge number of people that have risk huge. factors. And there are, and in fact I've 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 heard that in some countries now, when you look on the risk factor list, one of the risk factors is prior COVID infection. Right. <laughs> So, and so that's going to put everybody in the risk factors. And and none of it, it just doesn't make any sense, this type of approach. And there's been, I, it's amazing how they've managed to do it. But if you look at public health traditionally, mm-hmm. uh, there was actually a, I think it was a former, was he a former director of the CDC? Uh, Walter, somebody. He actually talk, wrote a paper back in the 80s about public health and that the goal with any disease is eventual elimination and eradication. Elimination being getting rid of the disease in a region, except you might have reason, uh, occasional outbreaks, right. as, as ha- people ignore this. That well, the United States has successfully eliminated measles, for example. There are still outbreaks, but <laughs> but it's not endemic. Same yes. here in Sweden. And then the uh, obvious goal with any disease is that we should eventually get rid of it, which is eradication. Whereas all of a sudden, this idea that that public health is about um, minimizing infectious disease is. Is extremist, and it's right. like this. This is bizarre. This is normal public health. This is what it's all about. This, we've got there's something like thirteen diseases that that World Health Organization has on a list of diseases that we eventually want to eradicate. Right, and you know, it's called polio and measles and all this type of stuff. That doesn't mean that we're going to successfully do it, but we are trying to minimise the impact of it. There's, but there's been so much of this push that this this virus is mild and. No, it's not. Been, what, a million people dead in the United States now? How many uh, people chronically yeah. ill? Um, this is we a mild know. virus, and uh, this is, just <laughs> makes zero sense at all. It's just is mild
0: it, It's just mild death, though. They were just yeah, mild exactly. deaths, you know, but just if, gentle if we, death.
1: You mentioned about the, the worry concern again. This is actually something we talk about in our paper, and there's a big focus here in Sweden, is that um, it was all about decreasing concern and worry. And um, it's funnily enough, to, this idea is continuing right now. I was reading in the paper a couple of days ago. A, a school in Sweden is censoring access to the web in the school to block news about the what? war in Ukraine, to block world news about the war in Ukraine. What? Because because children were getting stressed and concerned about it. And like, um. Well,
0: what? Yeah, oh my god. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Please continue.
1: And you Ugh. wonder well, how they and. And this, is, this has infused the entire debate here about uh, COVID.
2: Right, is that of course.
1: There, is, there has literally been ads out there. You you can find an ad and you're worried about getting COVID, then here are tools to help you if, uh, with your anxiety. There's no tools to help me with my COVID or my long COVID, but if I'm right. worried about COVID, I can find a nice website to, to help me with the, the anxiety. And yeah. I, I wonder, okay, well, how does this, go through society, through to adulthood, when, you know, the real world can be pretty damn stressful. And Sweden has a huge number of people that are on stress leave.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: uh, no wonder they've been told all, all their lives growing up that they need to be, that they should, shouldn't should be stressed and avoid stress and don't talk about these things. And then they get into the real world and they have none of the tools to cope with it.
0: Right. No, I, I mean, I, I think it's way, I think you're absolutely correct. It's way more important to sort of give people the tools to understand and uh, acknowledge reality than it is to um, basically gaslight them into convincing them that their concerns are immaterial or, uh, you know, not important, you know, or some sort of problem with them, frankly. You know, it's often framed as a sort of a pathological problem. And I, mm. I wonder, you know, the the conclusion of your paper Basically, the, the conclusion that you all come to is that Sweden needs to engage in a process of self-criticism about its political mm-hmm. culture and specifically, you know, about the things that a, a sort of allowed uh, the pandemic response, especially in the first year, to continue uh, as it did. Um, these kinds of decisions have obviously um, become more complicated since you wrote this paper, because as we've been talking about, you know, testing, which I, I hadn't realized this. Um, and so thank you for making me aware of that, that testing is now not available in Sweden for most people unless you're hospitalized. Um, what do you think are sort of any important reforms or reconfigurations that might be able to give us more leverage sort of going forward in, in managing living with COVID, frankly, because, you know, we always talk about living with COVID as if it's this kind of moment where we completely get rid of any mitigations. But that's not really how endemic management of a disease is, right? If that's even what was going on. Um, You know, I think living with COVID is more sort of how do we protect ourselves in the course of living through this pandemic, which is very much still ongoing. Um, So yeah, I wonder if you could sort of talk about some of the things maybe you feel need to happen as a kind of final um, wrap up.
1: We have learned so much about this virus and how viruses have transmitted over the last two years that there there should be, as uh, Kimberly Prather said on Twitter yesterday, a, a public health revolution now. If we look at what happened with influenza around the world in the last two years, we virtually eliminated it in many countries. Now, it's bouncing back again, but there was one strain of influenza that appears to have been eradicated. It's disappeared by accident because of the things we were doing to try mm-hmm. to slow down COVID.
2: Mm-hmm. And this
1: tells us that we really do have the tools and the knowledge and the technology to dramatically change our approach to infectious disease prevention. And that's what we should be looking to and preparing. I, I propose that, you know, in this there are seasonal effects with this virus that are probably a lot to do with behaviour, particularly in the Nordics. You know, here in Sweden, we basically all live outside in the summer. That's why the, right. the virus disappears here. There were regions of Sweden in both of the last two years that virtually had no cases of infections in the last two years during the summer period. We should be taking advantage of those times to plan for what's going to be coming again right. in winter, putting in air filtration systems, putting in air quality management systems, putting in plans of, of how to deal with an outbreak, uh, which is what we always used to do and what we have plans for for measles. That's what we should be doing, and we should be planning For how we're going to respond to the next wave now. Right. uh, And using the knowledge we have instead of, oh, it's mild, no problem, we just have to live with it, which is just the most, to quote you, stupid way of approaching this I can possibly think of.
0: Yeah. I mean, the most ancient um, techniques for managing the the spread of respiratory diseases are literally fresh air and masking. It's open the window, (laughs) open the window, or you have, I mean, I'm just thinking of like all of the sort of uh, the the long history of medical architecture, which goes all the way back to ancient Greece, where you have Mm -hmm. these innovations that are literally realizing we need to keep keep sick people away from each other. We need to make sure that there's fresh air through the room. Mm. We need to make sure there are enough staff to take care of them and that everybody sort of has um, as much protection from passing infections. Because oftentimes people who are in the hospital don't necessarily have the same thing, even though they're next to each other. But, you know, these kinds of innovations that we largely um, I think used to think of as health technologies, which were like clean air, Um, you know, clean spaces, uh, homes for people, shelter, access to good food, access to clean air, access to water, um, access to preventative health care. Like none of these things right now are being considered within the realm of pandemic responses. And I think, Mm. you know, it's telling that these interventions, when they are happening, they're unfortunately happening because it's like a group of parents getting together and retrofitting the school or it's people, you know, making, doing organizing and making direct interventions in their own workplace. Places. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that I think we need to see these um, acceptances of other public health technologies beyond pharmaceuticals as being also equally as important tools, because that's the only way I think we actually learn to live with COVID in a way that just does not um, burn through the population unnecessarily, causing untold death and suffering for however many years in the future people are going to be experiencing it.
1: Yeah, it's all about preventive medicine, which is... Um unfortunately always been a minor part of the medical world uh, we right. we react to sickness instead of trying to prevent it i'm actually sitting here looking outside my window uh to one of the great ironies i find in sweden is as of today even if you have covid and a positive test there is no recommendation that you have to isolate in sweden anymore <sighs> and i'm looking out into my garden where we have chickens and our chickens have been under quarantine for a about a year now because of bird influenza right. outbreaks here in Sweden, and so the the agricultural authority has quarantined all of the chickens. But uh, quarantine has been one of the things that's pretty much been ignored in Sweden <laughs> for people for two years. <laughs> so apparently, it works for chickens, but it doesn't work for people.
0: Uh, people who have so many like you know more social interactions than chickens too. I mean that is that is cruelly uh, hilarious and ironic. Yeah. David, thank you so much for making the time um, to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming on to talk about this study. Thank you um, very
1: much. It's been good. It's been fun. And um, I'll uh, I'll be listening to more of your podcast. I've uh, oh, enjoyed you. what I've listened to so far and uh, enjoy it today.
0: <laughs> thank <laughs> you to you and all your collaborators also for doing this absolutely tremendous amount of work. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners also really will appreciate uh, this walkthrough. And if people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at David Stedson S-T-E-A-D, S-O-N. Anything you want to plug before we go?
1: Uh, No, not at the moment. (laughs) Follow me on Twitter. If I change my mind, I'll let you know there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a plan. I think we'll leave it there for today to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Our premium episode is released every Monday for patrons only, and you get access to our entire back catalog of over 100 premium episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.